Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, JG McQuarrie. Say hi, JG. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? Well, I'm being put on trial for crimes of podcasting, so we should get this episode <laughs> out quick before that verdict comes in. Well, I'm sure we will be acquitted or at the very least left off in the technicality. But regardless of what the eventual outcome is, I think we can crack on with the episode. And as always, of course, we have our guest with us. So um, say hello, Jonathan. Howdy. How's it going? It's going very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Pretty good. Yeah. Watching good checks, so I'm excited. Well, that's always always a bonus when we when we come to this podcast. Now, um, as we always do when we have our guests on the show, we like to give them the chance to sort of talk a little bit about their history with the show and how they came to Star Trek. So, yeah, what's what's Star Trek to you? So, yeah, I've known Star Trek like for about as long as I can remember because my dad was really into the show. Um, so, I probably started watching Next Generation when I was like five or six, and then. Um, I uh, got into Voyager around the same time as well. So I've always really been with this franchise for a while. Um, the original series, though, I did not get much into until maybe like the last five or ten years. Because um, Next Gen and Voyager were more my tempo. But um, the original series, once I finally like got into those, I really dug it and enjoyed it a lot. Fantastic. And have you carried on through to modern Star Trek as well? Yeah, yeah. I got about halfway through Discovery of Season 3 before dropping off of that, but I am keeping up with the card. <laughs> um, I love Strange New Worlds. Yes. Um, Lower Decks took me a little bit to get into, but I really got into that one. So um, Lower Decks and Strange New Worlds especially, I think, have been pretty phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you're going to get much argument on this podcast over that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. I was just going to say half of the season three of discovery is like the best part to drop out of discovery because you're not getting to this point end of season three or the disappointing total of season four. So, Ooh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, the characters are still good. I like the characters. Maybe that's a better accurate word than good. And I don't <laughs> yeah. know, there's, there's, there's stuff that like, I can't stay fully away and I'm, I'm still going to watch season five. I'm always hoping they're going to figure it out, but yeah 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 that's all fair well before we travel back in time to 2000 and i don't know 22 and discuss uh discovery let's just travel back in time to 1967 and discuss court martial so um kev would you care to give us our usual summary all right in court martial the enterprise is recovering from an ion storm where they lost the death of a crew member who was ejected from a part of the ship um during an alert caused by the ion storm uh when they reach the planet uh the commodore there after an accusation from the deceased's daughter the commodore then reads the computer logs and it looks like kurt ejected the pod before the alert was sounded and which would be obviously a breach of ethics that means it was murder <laughs> and so he is put on court martial to see whether it was murder a mistake or something else kirk is of course adamant that he did the right things at the right time Though a computer-generated um, video of the logs seems to prove otherwise, Spock and McCoy try to give testimony, but eventually what they discover is that the computer has been tampered with. Um, that creates the possibility, since only Kirk or Finney could have 
alter the computer that Finney is alive. Uh, McCoy does a cool heartbeat test to single him out, and they find him hiding in the Enterprise. And after calling his bluff and stopping him, uh, yeah, Kirk saves the day, as he always does. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, um, yeah, let's just get straight into it. And Jonathan, since you're our guest, we would like to ask you to go first. So um, how did you find this one? I thought it was really solid. Um, I had gone in, I had watched it a few years ago. Um, remember liking it. So I rewatched it again. I remember like while I was watching it, trying to figure out what the dramatic thrust of the episode was supposed to be since I knew the twist of Finney being alive the whole time. So it was kind of interesting to see that it was actually more of a um trying to think the right words like dramatic um dramatization of the infallibility of computers and that's basically the whole thing of this this computer is supposed to be infallible and then it turns out it's not so um which in the last 50 plus years we've had several narratives about that but in the 1960s i'm sure that was much newer territory to be exploring especially for a television series yeah, I think that's I think that's probably a good place to start it. Uh, I think it is one of those ones where there's a sense that there's a, there's a number of different sort of threads in this episode, and I think one of the things that the episode struggles with a little bit is making all those threads kind of sit into a coherent tapestry. I may be overextending this metaphor slightly, but let's just go with it anyway. And and I think the idea that the computer is kind of fallible is is one of the threads, and we have. Um, Oh, the 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 uh, simply delightful Samuel T. Cogley as the uh, kind of human representation of that, um, and so we have we have kind of a nice little sort of balance there. But I think sometimes the episode struggles a little bit to to strike that balance. But I think there's a lot of really interesting, kind of very historically interesting kind of attitudes coming to the surface there. But um, yeah, Kev, how did you find this one? I that I don't know what else. Else had yeah, very interesting like threads here. I think the whole episode is it's a little the story's a little inert. There's not a lot of like action happening, which is I guess not strictly necessary for gripping television. But I don't know. It's it's also not gripping television. It is it feels a lot <laughs> very procedural in some ways and ways that aren't just uh people going through the motions of figuring out the pieces without a lot of nothing that much that's like grabbing me about it. But yeah, there's so many interesting details here, so much fun character moments here that it's definitely not an unpleasant experience. I really did enjoy watching it on that level, at least. Yeah, I think the detail of the episode is really what makes it work. And some of the detail is kind of very, very time-locked, and some of the detail is is kind of very of Star Trek. I think one of the sort of first things that I'd want to comment on is the idea of uh, Commodore Stone, uh, played by Percy Rodriguez. He's a really great character because he simply is you know so often we come across these crazy admirals or commodores that can't see the woods for the trees or they're just nut jobs that kirk always gets to come up against but he seems like an honorable man he seems like a decent person who is genuinely invested in both Mm -hmm. the idea of finding justice and to a certain extent um finding uh, a way to protect the service but i think what's most interesting is that for 1967 they've put an african-american in charge of kirk that's quite bold um and i don't know i don't want to go so far as to suggest that it's radical but that's the way that mm-hmm. kirk just kind of like automatically defers to him has immediate respect and, and kudos to shatner for the way that he plays it but kirk really just so clearly respects and understands and follows the chain of command where Commodore Stone is uh, concerned. And 
putting somebody of African-American descent in that position of authority without having any kind of like meta commentary or kind of anything else on top of it, I think it's quite... I think it speaks very highly of the episode and I think it's one of those kind of 1960s era details that makes the episode work. This isn't just, um, I don't mean to be uh, demean- uh, demeaning when I say this, but it isn't just Uhura. We love Uhura. This podcast is very, very pro Uhura and Nichelle Nichols and very anti the way the character got treated. Um, but this is like, like this is real proper representation being done in exactly the way that Star Trek should do it. It's self-evident. Nobody questions it. There's no meta commentary, and they just get on with it. And I love that little touch in the episode. It's colorblind casting before that term became hip. It's very much yes. like, yeah, just get the best actor for the role. And Rodriguez is a great actor. He gives such a good performance here. Um, fun to learn that after Star Trek, he would go on to become famous as like a trailer voiceover guy. Cause you can definitely hear that in his voice. It's a voice with like a lot of gravitas <laughs> and command, which appropriate considering the situation. And yeah, he's the best actor for the job. He does a great job. And it's like the fact that it's not commented on. And I don't know many, I mean, the whole point of this podcast is I don't have much experience with Star Trek, but uh, I don't know if they ever do really like comment on like ancestry like in that way with their actors. And that is such so, just so radical for the time. And even if, like you said, some of the actors like get the short shift, like Uhura and, or, or Sulu's fighting a samurai or something like a little more uncomfortable in a meta sense, it's still like, it's very open future based on race like there's no barriers there it seems and that was so radical for the time when we're not too many years removed or maybe even temporary with like guests just dinner in the heat of the night where if you have like Sidney Poitier in your movie as like a lead role you have to address the issue head on yeah I definitely think most of the um guest actors on this episode are really solid he's great um, Joan Marshall's really good. And then like Alicia Cook Jr. is so much fun as Cogley. So um, like the thing I always kind of struggled with through the original series was that it wasn't as much of an ensemble show as the spinoffs would be. Um, but they definitely managed to at least give like flesh it out so it's a full ensemble with the guest actors in this episode, which I liked. Yeah, I think there is a good sense of all the cast kind of pulling together here. And I think that helps a lot. It's another one of those episodes where we get some really good Spock and McCoy material as well. So all that stuff with the computer and figuring out what's wrong with it. Um, the the unquestioning kind of loyalty, the, the almost horror at the idea that Kirk could actually have committed the crime that he's accused of. All that kind of stuff. It's, it's not necessarily something that we haven't seen before. I think we've seen all these elements before. I don't know that we've quite seen them assembled in this way before. And for all that this does feel like, okay, if you use the word procedural, and I think that's exactly what this is, it's a procedural, but we still haven't quite seen all these kind of pieces organized in this kind of way before. I like the way that, I've sort of mentioned this in previous episodes, but I like the way that Star Trek is, is a lot more kind of genre flexible than just a, you know, a Western but in space. And this is another example of, of Star Trek doing that. So we have, yeah, the, like the bog standard kind of legal procedural and that's fine that's also another thing that star trek can do it's not really a well that it returns to but that doesn't mean that it wasn't a valid one for it to go to in the first place and for that to work all the characters need to be able to fall into the place 
that they would have in a traditional kind of legal uh, procedural. So you have the over-aggressive prosecutor who's got a personal interest and you have the upstanding citizen who's been wrongly accused of a crime they haven't committed and all this kind of stuff you've got the defense you've got the prosecution you've got witnesses on both sides you've got a situation which seems like it's one thing but it's all just absolutely straight down the line like classic kind of legal procedural and yet it's something that that star trek can can very easily embrace it's certainly something that next generation will go over will not only go on to do but very i would suggest arguably better with the measure of a man um but yeah it's 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 another notch in the sort of genre bedpost of, of things that star trek can achieve yeah i was thinking about that a lot with um trial episodes because it's not oh it is not well that they go too often but measure of man was a really good example of that um drumhead also from next gen um, oh absolutely and yeah. dax from ds9 was another pretty good one as well that kind of it's a good well for them to go to if they need a plot that's not going to have a lot of special effects. Yeah. Uh, I just want to talk more about the guest actors. I think they were got a brief mention earlier. We talked about Rodriguez. Uh, I think Joan Marshall is pretty good as, as you said, Gigi, the stock prosecutor type. Having her be an old flame as Kirk is... Uh, that's interesting. That's fun. And as racially blind as this show can be, I think uh, gender blind never would enter the conversation with Star Trek. <laughs> so I guess you have to give it credit for a woman in a position of power like that over Kirk as well. And she isn't too demeaned. <laughs> so here you go. Baby steps here. Yeah, it's it's nineteen sixty seven, you know, you can only you can only yeah. you can only go so far, I suppose. Um having said that, what what is it with the um Federation legal system which allows uh her to be the prosecution given that she has <laughs> such know. a personal interest in the, and like the daughter bursting in as well and all that, that's kind of a screwy legal system right yeah <laughs> it makes it, it makes the legal system my beloved ace attorney games seem like very on the level and sane and <laughs> those are video games around being a lawyer so you know it's that's yeah it's a very low bar um yeah it's it's an odd character but i think marshall's performance is pretty good like i think her oh, I, I playing those levels. Think she gives a good performance. Yeah, yeah. Just playing the levels of clearly having affection for Kirk while knowing that she has to do her duty as a prosecutor is, I think, just, yeah, very uh, fascinating. And, you know, she brings just that little extra to it. Um, and then I'll just keep steering the ship then, and we'll go to <laughs> uh, Elisha Cook Jr., who, uh, oh, he's such a good actor. I love him in this, and I'm... He also is just like, I love him the Maltese Falcon. I love him in The Killing. It's like, I didn't realize that was him, though, until I was looking at his Wikipedia. He's, obviously, it's a very distinctive face, so I should have put pieces together. But he's been in so many other great movies, too. It's kind of impressive that they got, he's basically stunt casting for this show. He's he's an extraordinary person to be in Star Trek, and I love his performance here. Mm. I think sometimes the script leans slightly heavily on the well you know i'm just an old-time lawyer you know the kind of thing <laughs> yeah. that uh, futurama will satirize with the chicken um but but nevertheless it's still an incredibly compelling performance but yeah one look at his uh, filmography and it's so immediately obvious why he's the person for this role and he is captivating i like the way that he just completely undercuts every assumption Kirk makes to him, uh, makes about him, and I have a kind of weird little continuity blip here, which is complete 
headcanon. Um, but uh, this whole thing that he has about loving books, about the way the books are what are important, and it's not about uh, the the mechanics of feeding all these books into a machine and, and coming up with a judgment, all that kind of stuff. Like, we've never had an indication that that's really something that Kirk cares about. We've seen a couple of books in his, in his quarters before, uh, but that will go on to be kind of a... a, a characteristic of Kirk and it certainly comes up in the movies that he collects these kind of antique books and so my headcanon is is that this is the place where he really starts to appreciate the value of the printed word rather than just something on a computer screen but regardless of my um, rather unnecessary theories uh, it's just it's such a gorgeous performance and he just inhabits uh, uh, yeah Elijah Cook Jr. just inhabits the character of Coakley so perfectly he's he has a lot of fun and especially when um when you're like first the trial starts and they're doing the cross-examination and he keeps passing on and you're like what's he cooking and you're trying to figure out where he's going with that mm -hmm. and then finally he's like and then finally he puts kirk on the stand and he's like this is all i need to do um mm -hmm. but he's such a fun righteous character and i do love the detail at the end in the final scene that they throw in where it's like oh yeah he's gonna be defending finney too he'll probably get him off too <laughs> Yeah, again, not a great legal system if that can happen, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, yes. it's a good gag, yeah. yeah, for television purposes, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I found the anti-computer pro-book speech so fascinating, because it's one of the ways, like, you'd be insane if you said that today. Like, I can just, it's text on a screen, you can just read it on your phone. Like, I don't know, I mean, there's definitely merits to physical books over e-readers from a personal preference standpoint. I don't want to say that, but like the idea that the laws are written better when they're written down as opposed to being on a computer is, I don't know, that sounds insane on the surface, but at the same time later in the episode, like this does feel weirdly prescient for specifically our moment right now when the idea of misinformation and AI tampering is at like, the peak is this our next big thing we have to worry about and that's actually what i was thinking a lot of during that the computer generated video which is achieved by this impressive effect of the actors filming a scene that didn't that quote unquote didn't happen <laughs> but um yeah it's like that is a real concern i've seen people write articles about recently where computers could ai generate video or images that could like prosecute people and that i mean props to star trek we got to hand it to them they they pinpointed a concern tackling deep fakes half a century ahead of them yeah i mean i think the other thing about it is that it, it kind of works on a symbolic level as well as a literal level so you know it's 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 not necessarily that they're leaning on the idea that computers can't return some kind of judgment but it is again it's that kind of this is going to sound very pretentious, I do apologize, but that's kind of the aesthetic core of the episode is the idea that it's it's humanity that will be the ultimate arbiter. It's not about simply following the rules or following an ABC. It's, it's about the way that we interpret the data we have, and that's literalized in the episode by the preference for books over technology that, that Cogley has. I think that's what they're going for. Um, I, it might be a slight reach, but I, I think that's that's kind of what the episode is going for is that it's kind of central thesis and um in in that i do i do both agree i, I mean i agree with both of you i think it, i think it's both incredibly prescient and pretty effective in the episode itself as well yeah and i think what 
leads to that reading more confidence is um, the the conclusion being the computer was tampered with. Like it's that's the more proof you need that if you just follow a computer blindly, well, the human element can still impact it. I think it is actually very smart to not have it be a how long thousand situation where computer broke down, can't trust computers. Like uh, the writer of this episode and the writers of Star Trek in general, clearly like a computer will give you the right, the best answer it can give. Like there's not computers suddenly, as is you see on the side of the time, suddenly not working or suddenly rising up and trying to kill humans. It doesn't work like that. A computer will still always follow code and that principle is held too. But still using that as a way to prove computers can be fallible by having the human element come from direction is, I think, like, again, like, that's, like, that facial recognition software is discovered to, like, not be accurate when the people coding it have their certain biases. That's to give, like, another example of how this episode reflects our modern world in the way that writers in the 60s could not have even imagined. Definitely. I think one... My only real issue, I guess, and this is just, I guess, the way Star Trek, the series is set up, is the fact that it is all based around this idea that Kirk is such an infallible person that mm-hmm. even the extremely logical Spock says it's logically impossible that he would do such a thing. So, right. yeah, I think that's, I think that's a very important thing to highlight because it is the big flaw of this episode. I would think is that there's no. There's no jeopardy here. There's no real sense that Kirk is not going to be in some way vindicated. Now, that doesn't necessarily undercut the drama because it doesn't become an if he's going to be rescued, it becomes a how is he going to be rescued. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. You can mm-hmm. you can derive plenty of drama from that. But it's so obvious from the word go that this isn't really going to go anywhere. It, it does slightly undercut it. And I think that's, you know, at the top of the episode, that's why I'm saying I think the details are sort of maybe more impressive than the broad sweep because there's no danger of Kirk being in, in real trouble here. Um, it does make, I do love the entire Spock on the uh, Spock on delivering his testimony moment for that, just because it is kind of this fun logic game. And Leonard Nimoy just, as always, kills it of that idea of saying, like, it is logically impossible that Kirk would do such a thing, even though it is logically impossible for the computer to be wrong. So I'm trying to wrestle with this. Um, And then, like, the prosecutor is trying to, you know, accuse him of speculation. And then he has that line, I am half Vulcanian. Vulcans do not speculate, which I took note of just because it's such a good delivery by Nimoy on that moment. Oh yeah, the like the little quizzical look on his face. I guess I, there, I, there might have even been an iconic eyebrow raise there when he's like considering the two sort of impossibilities he's presented with. Is just yeah, this just pure Nimoy in the pocket stuff. He's so good. He's brilliant in this. He absolutely is. And I think one of the the great twists. It's not even really a twist in this episode, but um, the, the great moment in this episode is that that thing about the the chess computer. It's such a I, I don't have a synonym, but it's such a logical way of of figuring out where the flaw in the in the prosecution's argument lies, and yet it's so completely characteristic of the way that Spock will analyze and interpret a problem and I you know for all that I love the way that Spock figures it out by beating the chess program what I love about that scene is McCoy 
he to me is the key in that scene because he is so passionate and and again it i mean it's it's such a cliche to say that kirk spock and mccoy are the id ego and super ego but it's such a perfect representation of that the way that mccoy is angry and dismissive and you must be the coldest person i ever met and all that and yet the second the second mccoy understands that spock might be onto something he drops it and he's in and he gets what's going on and he follows it and i just love that moment from mccoy because for all his passion for all his anger for all his human emotions he's such an intelligent character and the second that gets through to him yeah he's on board and i just i love everything about that scene yeah mccoy doesn't get a lot to do in this episode but he does play mm. that whole scene with spock really well and definitely helps it like really sell that whole moment i mean we're always saying how deforest kelly is great and this is no exception um i think we should always go to our always evergreen topic of how william shatner is great as well he's so in this episode <laughs> uh just as like the paragon of like I know you were saying, Jonathan, how that's sort of a flaw in this episode is that we have to believe that he'd be perfect and that mm -hmm. it's odd about that. But Shatner's performance gets you most of the way there, I guess, in believing it. He oh, yeah. is just so in command and in control as he always is. And the conviction with which he says it didn't happen that way without sounding like pathetic or needy, just like pure oh okay well obviously kirk is great and it may distract from the episodes like uh written complexity but it definitely is a compelling performance yeah he shatner doesn't get a lot to do in this episode even though it is all centered around kirk um but you do have that scene in act one with him with the portmaster um where they have to like get all the exposition out of the way of his relationship with him and finney and he makes it work, even though it's all just kind of trying to broadly set up that relationship. So we understand the theoretical motivation for Kirk wanting to kill him and then the actual motivation for Finney wanting to frame him. So and that's another really good scene, even though it's just two actors in a room. Yeah, I think the motivation behind what could potentially have, uh, you know, triggered Kirk to do this is actually the strongest part of the legal argument, because as we've discussed, the rest of it's just nonsense. But that part works really, really well. And the, the animosity that we see um, displayed by Finney is in such contrast to the, like, the calm and control uh, performance that Shatner's giving. And I love the way that Shatner's confidence never becomes overbearing as well. Like, Kev, you mentioned the idea that he doesn't become kind of, um, you know, uh, like pitiable or needy. But I like the fact that it doesn't go too far the other way as well. So he doesn't try and become like domineering. And I've, like watching it, I was trying to imagine like Patrick Stewart or Avery Brooks playing that scene where they would, they would have that kind of very stentorian approach to it. They really kind of force it down but the way that Shatner does it isn't quite that he is in command and he does understand that his actions are something that he is very clear on but it doesn't become kind of hectoring it never becomes lecturing and I really love that about the way that he's he's able to just put that in place and the very matter-of-fact way that he answers questions about well why did you choose Finney yeah because his name was at the top of the duty roster I mean, it's just, it's such as, again, it's just such a small detail, but it's just like, he doesn't have to even think about it. There's, and that 
more than kind of the arguments or the prejudice or anything else convinces it's just his was the first name that's why it happened that's the end of the story and Shatner is so good at being able to hit those beats we should also probably talk a little bit about Shaw um because she's the other like major character here and um one of many old flames of Kirk's that we've encountered throughout the series and will encounter throughout the series um which we'd already touched on earlier is it is like pretty progressive to have a woman as the prosecutor, although they, it does feel a little like they have to make her an old flame of Kirk's in order to undercut that a little bit. Um, but she, but Joan Marshall is really good and convincing as someone who is, you know, just doing her job for as much as she has feelings for Kirk. Yeah, I think she's great. I think she's a really interesting character simply because her competence is it like Commodore Stone and having an African American uh, character just be in charge. It's just like it's just there. It's just a statement of fact. And yeah, you, I mean, you're not you're not wrong, Jonathan, about the the way that it's slightly undercut by the fact that she's an old flame of Kirk's. But I still think like her competence is allowed to stand. She's not she's not pushed into a corner. She's not shown to be wrong for any other reason than you know in a legal argument one side has to win, one side has to lose. Well, if she's not defending Kirk, I mean, we're not massively surprised which way that swing is going to go. But, like, she's competent. She does her job. She's good at it. And and despite the um, the personal relationship, uh, it, it's just a, a lovely role. I feel kind of... I, I don't know. I really like Joan Marshall. And, like, her whole... Her whole filmography is just all genre tv i was trying to think of a less uh, rude way of saying that but i can't, I can't immediately think of one but it's all like it's all okay obviously star trek uh highway patrol 77 sunset strip uh the detectives the twilight zone Gunsmoke. it's all this kind of stuff i think her performance kind of implies in this episode that she could have been a bit a bit more than a, a like just a genre actor but she never really and, and th this is a thing that is a recurring uh occurring moments in the podcast but she, you know she never really kind of breaks out of that kind of genre ghetto and that feels a little bit like a shame because she's really good as Shaw yeah I have to agree like it's a it's such a good performance we touched on it earlier but it's such a good performance and she's playing like I said those levels again really well and I don't know you just wish that she'd do more career like this is this and the twilight zone episode are pretty much the only things out of her filmography that has remained culturally relevant and i don't think i've seen dead man's shoes but um yeah there's still like at least she has those two things to sort of keep her legacy alive you know so just 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 before we um before we move on from sort of talking about the cast i um i do want to talk about finney and mm -hmm. I, I very specifically want to talk about the whole um, fight scene in engineering because it's it's not great, is it? <laughs> I mean, I'm not normally somebody who's that bothered by, by stuntmen who don't immediately look like the actors they're mm -hmm. trying to replace. But this is really bad. Oh, um, yeah. it's It's a terrible scene. And, and the performance from Rawlings is a bit... Um, sorry, from Webb. is a bit... Um, broad is that the politest way mm -hmm. i can possibly find to say it um he he's is going giving, mad in the performance yeah 
I mean to say, he is, yeah, he's he is going quite the eye rolling loony, and I'm I also slightly feel that undercuts the end of the episode. Like I get what they want, but the fight scene is terrible. His performance is so far over the top, and it just like it doesn't give Shatner anywhere to go either. So he's kind of left a bit adrift. It's it's a bit of a shame because I I feel it really undercuts the climax of the episode. That plus the whole yeah. like the ship is diving into orbit does feel a little like the writers got concerned that it was too much of like a talky episode. So they're like, we need mm-hmm. to end on an action sequence in order to keep people excited, which it doesn't, I don't think it really needs that. Yeah. And also the ship going out of orbit, it's such an abstract problem. Like we need a good model shot of the ship diving out mm-hmm. of orbit. <laughs> we don't really get that. So it's just, and we don't need, we, need, we don't have the ship shaking around. We don't have lights flashing characters throwing themselves as the camera shakes, you know, there's tricks they have in their tool belt to demonstrate a problems happening. So it's just very odd that we don't get any of that. Well, absolutely. And I think the thing that you mentioned earlier, Kev, about the scene with the heartbeats, I actually think that's a really effective scene. It's a bit oh, yeah. cheap because it's clearly just somebody wandering around the set with a microphone, but that's fine. <laughs> I don't really care about that. Um, but I think that's a really effective piece of drama. I actually think that's a more effective way of kind of like drawing out the whole thing than a bit of a slap fight in engineering between uh, two people who very clearly aren't William Shatner and, and, and Richard Webb. And it's it's really... I don't know, just it, it feels so effective. Just that just that like the way that it cuts down, like you've got seven heartbeats, six, five, four, and then there's just one left. And that's the moment that everybody is suddenly convinced, oh yeah, he's still alive. He's still on the mm-hmm. ship. That's a great little moment of drama. Um and yeah, then then we get a portly slap fight, and that's a bit of a shame. Yeah. Yeah, what a well acted moment too, just the look. You, the camera editing to like the looks, expressions, and everyone's faces, and uh, Rodriguez, I think, gets then the line that he's still alive. Like he gets the big tension, mm-hmm. uh, the point on it, the button, as you'd say, and that is such like a great little moment there. Yeah, it's one of those great like sci-fi things. I feel like CSI did this sometimes too. Whenever tried out some crazy tech, where it's like we're going to introduce this concept that doesn't really exist in real life. We're going to explain it quickly, but efficiently. And then we're going to build a very effective sequence out of it. So it's, it is kind of one of the high points of the episode, I think, just like really good filmmaking. And it's the moment where McCoy gets to contribute something towards the climax as well, which has so far either been sort of legal shenanigans and or Spock figuring out that he can beat beat, uh, a computer at chess. This gives McCoy something that he can actually usefully contribute to the drama, and that helps as well. Yeah. it's And like you said, it is just like a guy wandering off the microphone, but I think that's Star Trek's skill is the ability to make a lot out of very little. And sometimes the sometimes it's not a lot sometimes it looks like a crazy alien that doesn't quite translate well or sometimes they forget to have the ship shake when it's falling out of orbit but other times yeah all they need is a microphone prop and with sound effects and performance and directing they can turn that into an incredible moment uh just with the imagination of this idea of a heartbeat monitor it's so it's such compelling television when they stumble on a good idea and a great way to execute it on a budget and I think that's probably a fantastic way of uh, summarizing the episode. Yeah, we're a little bit short this week, but um, sometimes that's what happens with these episodes. And so we can probably move towards a rating. So, uh, Jonathan, uh, what would you like to give this one? 
I would probably give it um, an eight and a half out of 10. Um, again, it's not perfect, but um, and it's aged a little bit weird just because of its, um, you know, the rate, um, the plot of man versus machine and fallibility machine has been utilized a lot. But um, again, great performances, um, some really good courtroom scenes. So it's definitely, definitely worthwhile watching. Fantastic. Uh, Kev, what would you like to give it? Uh, I'm going a little lower with seven. Like I said, it, I wasn't, there wasn't any really moment that like gripped or grabbed me during it. It was fun to think about, but just pleasant to watch. So yeah, seven feels right to me. And I think I'm going to go with, oh God, I actually don't know what I'm going to go with. Um, mm -hmm. Seven feels too high and six and a half feels too low. Uh, mm. da -da 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 -da. I know Kev hates half points, so I'm going to go with six and a half. Um, I think it's, I think it's fine. I think it's a perfectly decent episode of television. It's nice to see Star Trek expanding into genres that it hasn't previously covered, but I think it's better for the detail than for the overall episode. So yeah, I'm going to give it a six and a half. I think that's fair. All right, that does sound fair. Um, I only hate half points for myself because it feels like I, a 20-point scale versus a 10-point scale is too much to wrap my brain around. I like to just like round up and just leave it there for myself. But, I mean, you know, at this point, I'm not putting any more resistance to whatever you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You know the next episode is going to get a 0.25, right? <laughs> uh, well, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. Well, before we get too ridiculous, we can move on to recommendations. Uh, Jonathan, you're our guest this week. So what would you care to recommend? Um, well, I've been keeping up with Poker Face, which um, mm. Peacock, which is probably I've been thinking about probably my favorite scripted season of TV that I've watched in a very long while. Um, just great episodic TV, and like even when the miss, even when the episode is like not the best, there's just a consistent reliability to it that is just so much fun to watch them work within that formula and find little twists on it. Um, one of the most recent ones, the one with um, Tim Meadows as um, the former mm. TV actor. That one was particularly phenomenal. Probably their best one so far. Yes. Love Poker Face. Um, yeah, I think my favorite is the nursing home one with Judith Light. But uh, that that one, like Tim Meadows is a close second place. Um, Ellen Barkin's also in that one as well, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's also yeah, she was the other one with Tim Meadows. Right. Yeah, they get such good guest stars on that show. And Natasha Leone is such a great protagonist. I love that show as well. I really hope the Emmy Awards, the guest actor categories are just like half poker mm -hmm. face actors. All poker face actors and then one nomination for Andy Circus for Andor. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm, I, this oh. Uh, this is where I get to be slightly annoyed uh, by the, the generosity that we have on the podcast, because we always let our guests have their first recommendation. And I was going to recommend Poker Face as well. Oh, I absolutely oh. So we're going to, like, normally we, normally we square this stuff up before we start recording. We didn't do that for some time, for some reason this episode. So it's just going to, like, I haven't got anything else in the tank, so I'm just going to give it a double recommendation. Um, I also 
love it. I love Natasha Leon. I think she's brilliant. She's just so great. Um, you guys have mentioned guest stars. I want to mention Benjamin Bratt in the first couple of episodes as well. He's mm. such a perfect presence mm. in this series. Um, I just love everything about it. I love how it's um, so of a piece with procedural shows of the past, but it's got its own twist on it. There's everything, just everything about this show is is so perfect and i absolutely love it and i wish i had another recommendation that i could quickly pull out to suggest but i don't so here we are kev please tell me you've got something to recommend other than poker face i was heavily considering recommending poker face but thankfully i have another recommendation um that i was also conflicted about because it's very regional but you know what <laughs> in lieu of just three poker face recommendations i'll do this and it also serves an explanation for why i was stumbling over my words even more than usual uh this week um so in southern california if you want to go to a theme park right now disneyland is way overpriced overcrowded, and just kind of a mess they have of course like great rides and environments and if you want to experience that, maybe worth going once. But I've become very enamored with the other parks in the area. Um, last week, Studios as a preview for their new Mario Land, which opened this weekend to timestamp the recording. And that is such like a great little part of the park. It's very well themed. Uh, you can't get much out of it if you don't pay like, like $40 extra for a little wristband to do like little kid, for kids anyways. So that's kind of... Uh, I don't know. I don't recommend that most because I didn't do it, but it's just such a fun place, a little walk around, a little section to walk around. And the ride is very good, a little Mario Kart themed ride. And the rest of Universal Studios, too, it's much more budget conscious. Um, I can't pull up the exact price of what one of their annual passes is now, but it's it's an order magnitude cheaper than Disney. And once you get there, there's like a lot of uh, great like little themed areas. There's a Simpsons themed area with a pretty solid ride. There's unfortunately a Harry Potter themed area. I mean, as awful as the author of that place is, uh, it's very solidly built. I can't deny the craftsmen that went into that. Uh, there's like other rides based on other great movies. And of course, there's like the iconic tram tour where you get to see a lot of shooting locations, past and present, of universal movies and shows. It's such a great little park with a little history. There's less to do, but it's just. I mean, again, the budget, but also just like that's much more relaxed energy there. It's you're not like rushing around to do as much as you can and waiting in two hour lines. I feel you can just sort of hang out there and grab a drink and go on a few rides and still feel like you've had a great day uh, without people jostling you around to go to the next big thing. Um, the other park that I've been to recently, this time for the first time. And then I immediately got like annual pass because I want to go again is Knott's Berry Farm, which is close to Disney, actually a little south of Los Angeles. And this is a much more rinky dink park, um, very much more on a budget, but again, or magnitude cheaper to go to and you get your money's worth. I think it's such like a lovely place. Uh, it's instead of all this, like the only IP attached to it is just peanuts characters. You have some of them walking around and a couple theming on like kid rides, but otherwise it's just straight down the middle roller coasters and uh, thrill rides, and even a couple like still animatronic filled like dark rides and things like that. There's a great little like their take on Pirates of the Caribbean is you see miners and a little mining. Uh, that's not a mining facility. It's just just mining in a cave. <laughs> it's very it's very cute and very fun. 
uh, the couple of roller coasters, <laughs> me and my friend, uh, previous guest, Ellie Warren, were able to go on were uh, very thrilling and good in the way that Universal Disney usually shies from like the sort of thrill rides. But they also felt safer than Six Flags. I <laughs> recommend them over Six Flags any day of the week, which does not feel like it feels like an amusement park that's going to close down and fall apart any moment I step into it. Uh, not definitely feels like there's a mark of quality there. And it's just very charming to just have like rides without any tied to franchise and no pre-screens and no instructions and no backstory you have to memorize. You just get on the ride and you have a good time. I don't know. I'm I'm becoming a very return guy for a theme parks, I think, now after I've annoyed I've been with like Disneyland. Um, and if you don't live in Southern California, I'll try to generalize this a bit. Uh, Knott's is owned by a company called Cedar Fair, which does a lot of good amusement parks. I've only been to the King's Dominion they have in Virginia of their other ones. And I think that I remember that being great. But in that DMV area, I my, my family always preferred Hershey Park and Bush Gardens, which I haven't been to in years, but also remember being fun. So I guess that's my more general theme park recommendation is theme parks that aren't branded franchise. They can still be great. But also, if you are going to do a franchise one, do Universal over Disney because they are not as crowded or expensive or just unpleasant to be around these days. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I think I can safely yeah. say that this is the first time we've had a theme park recommended <laughs> on the podcast as a recommendation. So I, uh, I heartily commend you on your originality. Thanks, Kev. Fantastic. Um, and I think we can probably start to move towards our conclusion. Um, just before we go, uh, Jonathan, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Um, I am on Twitter at JonathanMB32. That's it. Fantastic. Short, short and sweet. Um, yeah. Um, wow. Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? All right. You can get in touch with us uh, on Twitter at TalkTrekToYou. I'm on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And I'm also a frequent guest on the podcast Total Massacre, which is again on hiatus. Uh, hopefully the host... So it might be back from Hayes by the time you hear this, actually, because it's coming out in April. So, um, yeah, it's been off and on, but on, it's such a great little podcast, and I love doing it. Um, JG's writings, you can find them on jgmcquarrie.scott, jgmcquarrie.scott, and his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, going through the Beatles track by track. Please like, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast you use to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Jonathan, thank you for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. Our absolute pleasure. And we can leave Court Marshall for the moment. Next week, we are going to be going through the return of the Archons. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>